more than 4,000 graduate students in over 80 different programs of study. You guys are sort of all over the world, it seems like. It's kind of mind-blowing when you think about it. Here on Inspiration Dissemination. converted into basically mathematical shapes, and we can now analyze the statistics of this shape. Good evening, listeners. Good evening, listeners. Good evening, listeners. It's December 8th, and you're tuned into 88.7 KBVR Corvallis. It is currently just after 7 p.m., and on a Sunday, that can mean only one thing. It's time for another episode of Inspiration Dissemination. I'm Lillian Paget-Cobb. And I'm Kayla Delventhal. At Oregon State, we have more than 4,000 graduate students in over 80 different programs of study. And here on Inspiration Dissemination, we feature the research and personal stories of one of those students each week. If you're a graduate student at OSU and you're interested in coming on the show, or you just want to find out more about all the awesome things going on at Oregon State, check out our blog at blogs.oregonstate.edu inspiration, where you can find out all about our up-and-coming guests and links to our Twitter and Facebook pages and podcast. Inspiration Dissemination is recorded live, and any opinions expressed on the show are those of the hosts and their guests and do not necessarily represent Oregon State University or the station. Tonight, we are joined by Nathan Justice from the College of Engineering, where his research is focusing on robotics. Nathan is a second-year master's student in the lab of Ross Hatton, studying the robotics of motion in black widow spiders. Hey, guys. Hey. How's it going? Yeah, hey. Thanks for coming on the show. Yeah, really excited to be here. And can you tell us about what it is you do as for your research? Sure, yeah. Uh, so my research is a lot about spiders, black widows in particular, and trying to apply robotics to fix this problem we're having with black widows right now, which is sort of weird. To back up, black widows love great plants, uh, which you would expect. I mean, it's a nice shady spot for them to hang up their web, and the grapes attract lots of small insects that come and get caught in their web and provide a nice dinner. But we don't like that so much when the black widows sort of sneaky crawl inside the grapes and end up being picked with them on people's tables. And it's to the point where like probably 700, 800 spiders, black widows specifically, are found in people's grapes all over the country uh, per year. And so we're trying to sort of solve that problem through a cool new technique. The basic idea is if you take a black widow and you put it onto another black widow's web, They'll realize that there's an intruder in their web, and they'll pluck back and forth at each other, sort of having this conversation with their feet through the web. And eventually, through those plucks, there will sort of be a winner. Uh, Someone's going to be dominant and win that sort of pluck conversation, and then they'll leave the web, and the other person gets to stay and keep that new Black Widow web. And we've discovered that if you play this signal back of them fighting into another Black Widow's web, you can get that Black Widow to leave the web. So the idea is if we can study how these spiders communicate, then we can maybe figure out how to generate some sort of dominant spider signal and get another spider to uh, leave its web. And so we can attach big shakers to the grape trellises maybe, play that signal through, and then maybe we can get all the spiders to leave right before it's harvest time. So we could maybe have a method of dispersing with these spiders just when we need to without having to use any pesticides. And we're sort of... Oh, sorry. Go ahead. (laughs) 
Oh, okay. So we're sort of using this <laughs> as an excuse to uh, study this new thing called video vibrometry, where we use a video to try to figure out how to read vibration signals present. So yeah, I was going to ask, you know, that's one thing I don't think about is how spiders communicate with each other. And that's really interesting how they actually do. It's through um, like vibration in the webs. Yeah, and, a lot of it is. Yeah. Okay. And Be they do that with their, their limbs. Yeah, they just okay. pluck just pluck the web, and they can talk to each other through their web by plucking through the web. I mean, obviously, it's also how they know, how they, know they have bugs stuck in their webs from the vibrations. And so uh, a lot of what Ross Hatton, my uh, PI, has been studying for the past few years is how to tell how spiders know where things are caught in their web, what the vibrations at any given point in the web tell us. And so, yeah, uh, they can have these really cool conversations with each other. It sounds like you guys need to be partnering up with other researchers, right? Like, are you guys studying what the spiders are saying to each other? Yeah, yeah I mean, that's the sort of the point of this collaboration research. And it is a partnership, this research is with the USDA. We're working with some arachnologists down in California. So do we know what they're saying when a spider comes onto the web and starts plucking? Can you kind of decipher through the vibrations what they're saying to each other? Uh, I mean, kind of. We expect it's mostly, uh, this is my house. Can you please leave my house? I right. don't like strangers being here. Uh, but it's it's hard to say. Uh, so we're, yeah, just trying to look at these signals. And they do pluck using certain patterns. If you look at these conversations they're having in the web, you can pick out patterns. And so that's a lot of what we're trying to help these arachnologists do is to uh, generate these sorts of patterns from lots of different spider conversations and try to help them figure out which parts are the meaningful parts to spiders. So you guys sort of work on the tool to see what they're saying, and then there's a team that's uh, breaking that down. Exactly, yeah. We work on the tool to try to okay. extract the conversation from the spider web, which is a really hard thing to do right now. Right. And uh, you mentioned that you've developed a new method. So why ditch older methods and start something new? Mainly just because they're a huge pain. So right now, the state of the art for getting vibrations out of something is to use laser vibrometry, which is where you take a laser and you point it at the thing you're trying to study vibrations from. And from the way that laser bounces back from the difference in wavelength of those lasers, we can tell how that thing is moving. And so we can use that to study vibrations of a single point. Mm -hmm. uh, but that's really tricky with spider webs because you can't align a laser against a single strand of a spider web. It'll just drift out of the way and it's not bright enough. And you can't really align it against the spider either because the spider will just skedaddle off to a different point mm -hmm. in the web and you don't want it all your precious time calibrating the laser is sort of wasted and so the idea is if we can use a video instead we can just point a video camera at the web as a whole mm -hmm. and then uh, we can just use that to analyze the vibration without having to do all this painful calibration so how do you go about setting this up and studying this so um, can you walk us through this uh, the experimental setup for how you um, go about monitoring vibrations with uh, video? Sure. It's pretty simple. All you do is attach a video camera to a tripod and just set it up pointing at the web and hit record. Some of our first results were done with just an iPhone. The researchers in Berkeley pointed an iPhone at a spider web and blasted it with a puff of air. And we were able to recreate the same results from a laser vibrometer using just somebody's iPhone. So that's a lot more what? convenient and cheaper, yeah. That's bizarre. For higher frequency signals, you need a camera that records at faster frame rate. So we also have a, a fancy high-end camera that records at some few thousand frames per second that we use for a lot of our more fine-tuned, accurate measurements. So when you're studying the video output, 
Is there like a certain signal that you're looking for? How do you kind of uh, determine what sort of signal you're looking at and how that uh, correlates with the spider's communication? Yeah, it's really easy to tell when there's actually a signal there that compared to when there's not. Uh, it's basically what we're making is an audio file. I mean, we're studying vibrations, and that exact, that's exactly what audio is. It's just vibrations in the air. So the output of a lot of my software is what looks like an audio file that you can play back. And so when a spider is talking to each other, you see these peaks in activity compared to a flat line. And when nothing's really happening, it's just a bunch of noise, white noise, basically, yeah. So what sort of results have you gotten so far from your research, and how does your research fit into this context of the project? Sure, yeah, that's a fair question. So I've been in particular studying a couple different things, a couple different areas, both focused on the biology of it. The first is how are we going to do this experiment outside eventually we want to look at what vibrations are like outside and that's not really something that's been done with video yet so i've done a lot of experiments just in a, a park nearby recording some plants while my car is on or off seeing <laughs> what sort of if we can detect uh, the signals that my car is making and another fancier thing we're doing is a, so a video camera can only detect vibrations in two directions up and down and left and right just because of the uh, grid layout of its pixels but the idea is if we get two cameras and point them at the same place, then we can see how those, vibra those vibrations play out in three dimensions using stereo vibrometry. And so that's a lot of what I've been doing is working with this researcher from the USDA to uh, get out three-dimensional vibrations from the spider webs of black widow spiders that they have that built webs in the, their lab in uh, Fresno, California. Hmm. And so, yeah, we're able to get some signals in three dimensions. Is this the same concept of what you're explaining to me about the, the bag of chips? Uh, it's similar. Different? No, it's the same basic software. The idea that <laughs> Kayla's talking about is that if somebody's like talking in a room and there's a bag of chips on the table, <laughs> we can use this software that we've been developing to re-extract what people are saying in that room from video of how the bag of chips is vibrating, which is pretty cool that you can get right. that level of accuracy. So similar but different. Yeah, yeah, okay. kind of. I'm, I'm not, that's a lot of very high frequency vibration mm -hmm. activity analysis. I'm more focused on low frequency because spiders talk to each other at really low frequencies through their web. It's about 60 hertz, about one pulse per second. Okay. I'll pretend oh, to sorry, know what that hertz. is. Yeah. yeah. Okay. <laughs> so why is this important, this, why is this research particularly important or what is the downstream impact on, uh, say, the grape industry, growers, or consumers? Yeah, that's a great question. The downstream impact would be to try to reduce the use of pesticides in the fields, because right now we're trying to spray our method right now of trying to make sure that no spiders end up on your table when you put a bag of grapes down is to spray the whole field with pesticides. And that's bad for a lot of different reasons. I mean, obviously pesticides are yucky mm -hmm. and nobody wants them on their food unless they get rid of bugs. But also, they're just not working. Like I've mentioned a couple times that the Black Widows are really smart, and they're really smart. They know that they can figure out that the tractors are coming to spray for pesticides, and they go hide in the grape plant to escape wow. the pesticide spray. And so it's bad for the environment, and it's also, you know, just it not working. And an interesting note here is that typically when we're spraying with pesticides or fungicides or whatever it is, we're trying to get rid of um, 
a pathogen or something that's harming, in this case, the grapes. But for the spiders, are they actually harming the grapes and even people? No, we, we like the spiders in the grape field. They're good for the ecosystem that we're trying to cultivate. It's just basically a big PR problem for the grape people. Right. So this could be this could have a huge impact because we actually don't want to kill the spiders. In the end, we just want them to move when we need them to. If exactly. I'm understanding yeah. The correctly. spiders are our friends most of the time. <laughs> cool. So when, when would you implement uh, this technology as a method for management? Would it be like later on or closer to harvest? Yeah, it would be actually during harvest time is the important critical time where we would want the spiders to try to leave. We can We want to leave them in for most of the time. It's just when we go around to pick that we probably want them gone. Right. So it sounds like we would be able to have them uh, impacting the ecosystem in a beneficial way. We've got our happy grapes and then we can get them to leave without spraying a bunch of fungicides. So in the end, everybody's happy. Yeah, that's the ideal solution. Yeah. (laughs) So this has been the bulk of your master's research. Yeah, this is what I've been working on for about the last year and a half. Okay. And you're wrapping up relatively soon and you're going to be continuing on to a PhD. Oh, uh, yeah, program, I hope I'm right? wrapping up soon. Yeah. yeah. Uh, <laughs> and I am going to continue on to a PhD afterwards. Yeah. I'm going to uh, transition professors and start working on a just completely different project for my PhD, but still here at Oregon State. Mm-hmm. And it's also still in robotics, right? Yep. Also still in robotics. Yeah. Okay. Can you tell us a little bit about the background for what you foresee that you're going to be doing as part of your PhD. Sure, yeah. I'm going to be working on ocean robots, which is really cool. Yeah, there's a lot of really neat stuff that we want to do with ocean robots. I mean, it's useful for uh, biological, geological, archaeological research that you want to do underwater. There's a big push for them in the Navy to try to do ship hull inspections. There's a lot of stuff we have to do on the outside of ships that we have to send a diver out right now for, and it's really inconvenient. And uh, another reason is uh, there's almost all of our telecommunications infrastructure for different countries overseas lies in underwater uh, pipes, or uh, not pipes, uh, cables, underwater cabling Mm -hmm. uh, going to other countries. And so there's sort of maintenance on that that needs to be done. So there's this big push for underwater autonomous robots, and that's where my research is going to lie. I'm trying to give these underwater robots uh, the ability to operate without needing a person right there to uh, watch them do what they're doing. And specifically on the manipulation aspect, I'm going to be working with big underwater robot arms. Can we quickly go over uh, what we have now, like what people use um, to do these things we're talking about since we're not quite yet at autonomy? Sure. Yeah, we're we're pretty far from autonomy at this point. (laughs) Uh, Right now, when we want to send out an underwater robot with a robotic arm, which again is what I'm working on is the robot arm aspect of it, then we have to have a person basically right there next to it. Uh, controlling the robotic arm. And there are a handful of ways that's done, but the important thing is that it has to be connected. They have to be tethered to the robot. They have to either be tethered or within just a handful of meters away. And so there's not really a large range of deployment. And so if you can give it this autonomy, you can deploy these robots further out and also you could enable whole swarms of things. It's really cool to imagine a, a sort of fleet of these autonomous robots that you could send out to do some sort of scientific survey on the ocean floor. Right. You mentioned that we might have like a scientific fleet of underwater autonomous robots. And I got so excited because it sounds like a sci-fi movie, but it could be real. Yeah, I think it's got (laughs) a whole lot of really cool scientific applications. There's right right now, if you think about it, we're using drones to survey forests. That's a big thing that's happening at Oregon State, I think. And so the idea is you can just send out this whole like fleet of maybe 10 drones to go survey, take video of the top of a bunch of forests. And you can tell a lot about forest health 
from what they learn. And so I think it's really exciting that we could maybe be able to do the same type of thing on the ocean floor where we have very small amounts of knowledge. Right. What sort of challenges are there in building an autonomous robot? Like, why hasn't this been done yet? Like, what are you up against? Yeah, that's a great question. A lot of it is just noise, limitations in robotics that we have right now. So whenever we measure something, we're not actually measuring that thing. We're usually measuring some other representation of that thing, like the light that bounced off, like I mentioned with the laser earlier. And so... When our autonomous robots plan paths, thing to do with their arms, so you imagine you have a robot and say it's Miami 20 years in the future and you've got an archaeological robot to uh, go out and do a survey of Miami because Miami's now underwater in this scenario. Oh, my God. And you, uh, so you're trying to like turn a knob on something or open a fridge. And so you make a plan for the robot to open out its arm, reach towards the fridge, grab the door, and open it. But because of all the weird things that are going on with the noise in that you're actually reading things and because of the current pushing you around, the path you actually make won't actually be fully correct. You might end up like ramming your arm into the door of the refrigerator, say, if the current pushes you at the last minute mm-hmm. when you're not expecting. And so my research is when this happens and when your arm rams into something, how can we make sure that it doesn't break and how can we make sure to adapt the path in a way that makes sense? Right. How, how are these robots sensing underwater? Because if it's at um, a great depth, then there might not be high visibility, right? Yeah. Uh, so we're actually not using video cameras a lot of the time, and that's because of the like what you said, the turbidity of the water, there's dirt that gets thrown up from just being around in the underwater scenario. And so video is not really a reliable method. We usually use uh, sonar for a lot of our applications. There's another lab uh, here that I work pretty closely with that is studying how to use machine learning to turn sonar readings into 3D uh, sort of representations of the object that we can work around and make paths around. So how are you going to go about testing these controls in the in the robot that you're going to be working with? And maybe you can walk us through. It's actually a robotic arm. It's not um, maybe a robot that you would think about typically. Can you talk about the, the setup of that? Yeah, sure. So right now we're in the process of buying this just huge robotic arm. It weighs more than I do. It's it's. Pretty heavy. And it's also taller than I am extended. So it's about 150 pounds and it's about a meter. And it's like 1.7 meters, I think, when it's fully extended. So it's pretty tall. And so we've got, we're buying this huge robot. We're basically going to build a huge tank and fill it up with water and drop the arm down in it and try to do some experimental grabs and try to do some tasks. From the size, it sounds like this arm is going to be opening more than a refrigerator. (laughs) Yeah, it's got a decent (laughs) amount of force to it. That's very cool. Um, what sorts of um, variables are you guys trying to control or test for, I should say, inside of this tank? Yeah, so it's mainly just how we're going to position the end of the arm. And so that's the most important thing is can't you tell it to like pick up a wrench that you dropped on the ocean floor. 
uh, can it actually go down there and do mm. that without crashing into the wall? Gotcha. But there's a lot of other different aspects. So this is going to be a lab representation of the problem on the ocean floor. And so it's going to be a lot more general. We're not going to have really dirty water, but we'll probably limit ourselves in the amount of sensing we can do. Like we won't attach a video camera to it. And also there's a lot more going on on the ocean floor in terms of like current, just the water pushing you around in the base of the arm. So in this scenario, the wrench that we dropped on the ground will be stationary with respect to the base of the arm. But on the ocean floor, it's going to be drifting around. Mm -hmm. And so... That's something I might, I'm, I'm going to be thinking about how we can simulate that. Am I going to add big motors underwater to try to push the water around? That's going to be a tough problem right. while I'm designing it. So that's actually going to be part of your research is to design the experimental conditions to test the underwater sort of conditions for the robotic arm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I'm okay. going to be building this test bed. It's a big task. Yeah, a big, big task for a big arm. <laughs> so it seems like... Your, your research is very heavily focused towards robotics. And can you tell us a bit about how did you become so interested in robotics and really want to pursue it all the way into graduate school, not even uh, not just your master's, but a PhD? Sure, yeah. So I got my undergrad at uh, University of Oklahoma studying aerospace engineering, and that was sort of because I had this dream for a long time that I wanted to uh, get a space job and work in the space industry for a while. And so I got my undergrad degree, and I did. I got a space job. I went and worked at NASA Johnson Space Center for a couple of years. And throughout that path, I ended up starting to get into the space robotics research. So I did a like NASA-sponsored competition where you had to build a, a rover to go out and explore some artificial space environment. That was a lot of fun. We ended up winning. But through that process, <laughs> no, no big deal. We're going to bring that up again. <laughs> Just drop that. Uh, but through that process, I sort of discovered about myself that it was actually the robot part of the problem that I was really interested in. Hmm. And so that's what sort of brought me here. Hmm. Actually, I was half kidding, but now I'm serious. Yeah. Can we talk about this rover? Sure. Yeah. Um, how, how big was it and what was it designed to look like? Yeah. So it was about a meter by a meter. That was the constraint of the competition was that it had to fit in this box sort of we were simulating like we had limited payload space that we were able to actually send up and it had to be below a certain mass limit and it basically ended up looking like this giant centipede kind of thing mm -hmm. a centipede with wheels at the end so it had a, a handful of pairs of wheels and it was able to sort of crawl over a bunch of different rocks and stuff and it was, the challenge itself was just a giant easter egg hunt they just hid colored rocks all around oh, this no artificial yeah uh, mars course so there's lots of sand and big rocks and stuff. And they you had to just go around and pick them up and put them on the rover and get back to your little starting position. So did everyone come to this event with their rovers? Yeah, there are about eight different robots oh, from around the country. Yeah, That's fun. Do you remember how many Easter eggs you found? Just curious. Yeah, we found about 30. I think, <laughs> so I think we found like, yeah, 27. I think they put out like 30. So we found almost all of them. Wow. Yeah, I'm still proud. So how did you get involved in this competition or even find out about it? Uh, so it was one of my professors that I was working with in my undergrad, and it was uh, he did that uh, sort of space research, space and robotics research. And so I just uh, went to him. His name is Dr. David Miller. So I just went to him and said, "Hey, what sort of projects do you have in your lab that I could do cool space robot stuff on?" He said, "Build me a NASA rover." <laughs> yeah, let's do it. Yeah, typical stuff for undergrads. <laughs> <I> think. <laughs> did you have any other undergraduate research experience? Um, How did you um, 
sort of uh, find this professor who was sort of instrumental in you finding this uh, the NASA competition opportunity? Oh, I just asked around. I did another cool thing with him where we sent up a giant balloon into almost space, which was cool. Yeah, I just filled it up with helium and sent it up. And I built little wings on the side of the balloon so that it could turn and point different directions. That was a neat project. Was that part of a like a larger research project or was that actually just for fun? That was for a class we okay. did working under him. Yeah, it was basically for fun. For the class, we were trying to design a research experiment. And so our experiment was to see, can we control this balloon as it goes up into space? Mm-hmm. So after you uh, you finished undergrad, you did this. You worked at the NASA Johnson Space Center in mm-hmm. Houston. So what sort of things did you do there? You said you worked there for several years. So that's quite a bit of time. Um, what sort of experiences did you have as part of that? Yeah, I worked there for two years. I was at so that was at Mission Control for the International Space Station. I was on the communications team, uh, which is one of the four teams at ISS Mission Control uh, that are there twenty four hours a day, seven days a week. Uh, so the, as part of the communications team, we were in charge of the basically any computers that talk to each other on the station. So we were in charge of the uh, network architecture, the communications architecture on the station. And we were also in charge of communication that happened uh, with the station and other places. So if the astronauts are going out on a spacewalk, we're in charge of making sure that we can see their video. We're able to have good uh, communication link with them so we can talk to them. And also the link with the ground, so the space-to-ground communication. So when something happens on the ISS, how do we know about it on the ground? What are the sort of telemetry indications? We carried those bits of telemetry to the ground. So if astronauts were having problems up in space, you were the person they would call? Uh, well, yeah, their, their <laughs> distress signal would come through us. Yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. <laughs> Other, they would actually talk to the Capcom. So there's one person in mission control who's in charge of actually talking with the astronauts. That sounds efficient. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then there's the flight director and the head, which is who we sort of reported to when we were actually on console, which is when you're monitoring the signals from the ISS and trying to correct any issues that are happening or on a good day, just watching everything happily as planned. And as part of your job, you also uh, helped out with configuring equipment for experiments. Oh, yeah. Uh, So a lot of different uh, experiments that were done on the station. So there's a lot of science that gets done on the ISS. That's the main purpose of it, right? And a lot of that uh, different science that's done requires video setup or audio setup or a lot of different uh, maybe computer links to different places on the station. And so we would just help set that up because we were also in charge of the video and audio uh, for the ISS. So if you needed video to be recorded of something. So we had like space mice for a little while. We were trying to study mice in space. So we had hmm. video of their little mice habitats and they were streaming down to the ground. Whoa. Yeah. Did your experience working at the NASA Johnson Space Center inspire you to go to graduate school? Or sort of how did that, how did one thing lead to another? Yeah, that's a great question. I guess you could say it did inspire me to go to graduate school in that it was in Houston and I wanted to no longer be in Houston. Uh, so there was that aspect of it. And there was also just, uh, so the job was very, very, very technical and very, very high stress, but there wasn't a lot of math involved. And I've got a really math oriented brain. I love to just sit down and uh, solve problems just because I'm a huge nerd. <laughs> and so I was sort of looking to reset and moving to Oregon and going to grad school seemed like a great way to do that. Mm-hmm. 
Have you always been interested in the marriage between biology and robotics? Yeah, I think that's a, a great area. I'm super interested in, as a roboticist, my ability to help other scientists manage the research that they need to do. So how can I build some tools to help other people, biologists, study the world better? And I love the fact that I have a skill set that helps that get done. Right on. It's a bit early to say, but with your your background and continuing your experience working in robotics, would you say that's that is an area you want to definitely continue in in the future? Definitely, yeah. I I would love to have a job uh, building robots to help science get done. Like like I mentioned earlier, with since I'm doing my PhD in underwater robots, it seems likely that uh, there would be some work that I could do there. I'm also interested in uh, just in general, robotics for good, the idea that we can use robots to help improve quality of life for people, maybe even outside of the oceans. And so since I'm doing a lot of controls work in how to manage robot arms uh, specifically, it seems like that translates well into a sort of exoskeleton style uh, robot research. So I'll have a lot of experience with controlling robot arms. So I think there's a lot that can be done with uh, using robots to help people with disabilities or uh, rehabilitative robotics, robots for physical therapy. Powered orthotics is a really cool field. Mm-hmm. And would, that would also be a great place for it. Yeah, actually, so shortly after we spoke, um, before this interview, I watched this series on HBO about Chernobyl and what happened there, and it was just running through my mind, if only we had autonomous robots that could go in and actually you know, move the right level levers or touch the right buttons or do these things so that humans didn't have to be harmed. Um, and maybe in the future, but yeah, that's, that's, a, that would be a really cool application for it. It's a really tough problem. If you think about Chernobyl, just the, I mean, there was sort of destruction everywhere. And so our main approach to robotics right now, which is to throw wheels on something and have it roll around just wouldn't work. Mm-hmm. And so you would need to have some sort of robot with legs probably to climb over all these things and there's also another lab here at oregon state that does that and does robot legs that's really cool yeah robot arms robot legs that's a great (laughs) idea yeah um so we're coming to the end of our interview tonight and we have a couple of traditions on the show the first one is for you to share a piece of advice and this is um to an audience of your choosing and can you share with us what you what you uh your advice sure yeah i guess i'm gonna aim it at other graduate students, although I think it applies to anybody. And that's just to don't try to like check every now and then to make sure your priorities are in order, I guess it's. Uh, so it's for me, at least, it's really easy to get caught up in schoolwork or trying to impress my professor and just forget the fact that, uh, I mean, part of the point of life, I think, is just to have fun. Uh, so sometimes it's important to just go back and make sure you're having fun. It's just good for mental health. Learn how to rock climb or surf. (laughs) Very true. (laughs) I like that advice. Mm. Definitely. And the other tradition we have on the show is uh, we play you out with a song of your choosing. And um, can you tell us what you chose and why? Yeah, I chose uh, Dissect the Bird by John Craigie just because I think it's a good song. It has a lot of positive messages in it. And also he's from Northern California, so... He's around here all the time. He's playing in Portland in a few weeks. A local artist, and he makes good music. Nice. 
So I just want to say um, you should definitely come back and talk to us in a few years. Once you're a few years into your PhD and have further developed your research in underwater robot- robotics, and just uh, give us an update on what you're doing. Yeah, it sounds like a plan. Yeah. All right, well, thanks for coming on the show. Yeah, thanks. Thank you for listening. If you want to support the show, tell your friends about it and give us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts and follow us on Twitter and Facebook at KBVRID. This theme music was performed by the OSU Drumline and the intro jingle was created by Olin Hamat. Special thanks to the supporting staff at KBVR that allow the show and podcast to be possible. This show was started by Jean Kamvar and Joey Hulbert in 2012. To learn about our current hosts, other graduate students at Oregon State, or if you want to be part of the show, visit our website at blogs.oregonstate.edu inspiration. Thanks again for listening and stay curious, my friends.